This episode of Emmaus Road Chronicles reveals 13 authentic secrets that conquer the myths and mysteries of heaven. Thank you for joining me today. We're just going to have a little chat on heaven. People want to know about heaven. In fact, I did a little research and I discovered that millions of searches occur every month on the internet. People looking for information about heaven. The best place you can look is not on the internet. It's in the Bible. Because the Bible talks about heaven very clearly. It doesn't say a lot about heaven, but what it says, it says very clearly and distinctly. The Bible <clears throat> describes for us heaven. And we've looked at it in our previous videos in this series on the book of Revelation. We've concentrated in the last two chapters of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. There are five visions recorded in those two chapters. We've looked at the first four visions, the first one being the new heavens and the new earth coming down out of heaven. And then we saw the second vision, the holy city coming down, a description of the new heaven and the new earth using the same terms, using different terms to describe the same thing, new heaven and new earth, and then it's called the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned like a bride for his bridegroom. And then we have a third vision where it talks about the voice coming from the throne. And we find as we read through that vision that that voice is none other than the voice of Christ himself, describing some of the blessed benefits for his followers and believers who have trusted in him over the centuries and the experiences that they will enjoy together with him in heaven. And then the fourth vision, ending chapter 21, is a physical description of this city, this holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And it talks about foundations, and it talks about gates, and it talks about the walls, and it talks about it being a three-dimensional city. Quite a description of the last part of the chapter 21, talking about this new Jerusalem. That vision ties in with the last vision, the fifth one, which is, trans is uh, given to us in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And they tie together because they talk about this new Jerusalem, this new city, the heavenly city, the city of God. And it's described as a temple, a temple. This theme runs throughout all of Scripture and helps us understand the integrity of the Bible. Because it gives to us this theme all the way through Scripture, and it is consistent and clear all the way through Scripture, talking about the same things that we see revealed in Revelation 21 and 22, described earlier by prophecy and by experience throughout the Scriptures. The first thing that we see in Revelation chapter 22, verse number 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. This temple has a river flowing down the middle of it. This temple city, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and new earth, has a river flowing through it. And this river 
also has a theme through Scripture. And we'll look first at the theme of the temple through Scripture, and then we'll come to the river and its theme through Scripture. The very first temple that we find in Scripture, we find in Genesis chapter 1. After God created Adam and Eve, he came down and he visited them. And he spoke with them, and he taught them, and he gave them commandments of how he wanted them to live, and he wanted them to be fruitful, and to have children, and to multiply, and to replenish the earth, and to go and spread throughout all of the earth, taking God's presence with them. The very first temple, Genesis chapter 1. And then we find the garden in Eden. God took Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the garden. We find that in chapter 2 of Genesis. That is like a garden temple. The presence of God dwelt there as well with Adam and Eve. And he fellowshiped with them. And he walked and he talked with them. God's presence upon earth. That's the primary emphasis of the temple. God's presence upon earth. Well, we know the sad story of what happened to Adam and Eve. And ultimately to us because of their sin. Adam and Eve sinned. They ate of the forbidden fruit in the Garden in Eden. And immediately a separation occurred. A chasm came between God and his presence on earth and Adam and Eve. Their sin affected all of creation. It affected not only them, but it affected all of the rest of creation that God made. We'd find described in Genesis 1 and chapter 2. And that sin of Adam and Eve has come down to us, their progeny coming out of their loins ultimately in time. Their sin came upon us. And we now experience that same chasm, that same separation between us and God. Well, that that chasm is described throughout all of Scripture where God no longer had a presence upon the earth. Because... Because of their sin. Well, God has a plan, and when he has a plan, he works his plan, never fails. He designed a movable temple where he would come down and worship with his people. We find that described for us in in the first five books of, of the Bible, as the children of Israel traveled from Egypt out of slavery into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham and his seed. And we find a tabernacle, a portable one there. And he said, you you build it according to my specifications, according to what you see in heaven, he told Moses. According to what you see in heaven, that's how I want you to build it. And when you get it built, I will come down and my presence will be with you. But in this instance it was confined to the tabernacle and a special spot in the tabernacle. Well as the children of Israel moved into the promised land and they captured it and began to rule and live there, they built a more permanent temple in Jerusalem and God's presence came down there in that temple. Well ultimately the children of Israel sinned and continued in their sin And God could stand their sin no longer, and so he left. He pulled out of the temple. We find that described for us in the book of Ezekiel. How God left the temple, took his presence away because of their sin. Hundreds of years passed before we see the temple again. This time we see the temple in a person, 
Christ. Christ came, and he was born of a virgin, took on flesh like you and I have, and God indwelt him. He was, he was a impossible to describe and fully understand, but he was God and humanity in one. Two natures, one life, one flesh, Jesus the Christ. And he called himself the temple. And he said it in this fashion in response to the Pharisees and scribes and his enemies, you know, prove to us you're the Messiah. And he said, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. They thought he spoke about the physical temple, the building that was there. No, he wasn't speaking about that building. He was talking about himself, his body, himself. He was the temple. Well, because of his life, his sinless life, and his death on the cross on behalf of sinners like you and like me, he made it possible for us to become living temples. Not of our own selves, but rather of the Spirit of the living God. And we find described for us in Corinthians, it says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one that Christ said he would send, he would go to the Father, and he would ask the Father to send the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to come and to live within those who believe and trust in Christ, so that those of us who have trusted in Christ, we're temples. We're temples. But we find the temple again surfacing in the book of Revelation. Chapter 21 and 22, it talks about the temple, and it describes the physical descriptions of it. We find that in the tail end of chapter 21, describing this temple. And then we find also in chapter 22, we're going to look at in this episode today, some new delights in this city. A city temple. A temple city is city temple. New heavens and new earth, the temple of the living God where those followers of Christ will reside and live and dwell and fellowship with him forever. Well, as we look now at Revelation 22, we come to the river, which I mentioned a few moments ago. That is also a theme throughout throughout the scriptures. The first occurrence of river and referencing to the temple is, yep, you guessed it, it's in the Garden in Eden. There's a river flowing through the middle of the Garden in Eden. That lush temple on earth, the very, well, it's the second temple, actually. The first one was before God took Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, but it was an early temple, a place where God resided on earth, fellowshipping with humanity, God's creation. We find that river occurring throughout Scripture. There's a theme about it. We find when the children of Israel traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land, we find they ran out of water. And God instructed Moses on how to get water out of a rock. And he smote the rock. And guess what came out? Water came out of that rock. And the scriptures describe and define for us that rock. And we read in the New Testament and describe that rock was Christ. In the Old Testament, that rock was Christ who provided the living water for the children of Israel that they might have the nourishment that they needed for their physical health and well-being. We also read in the book of Psalms, it says, There is a river that makes glad the city of God. 
river. We find in the book of Ezekiel and his prophecies about the future temple and the future temple that he describes fits this description in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. And guess what flows out of that temple description in the book of Ezekiel and his prophecy? Yep, you guessed it again. A river. A river flowing through. And then we find Jesus in the New Testament when he spoke to the woman at Samaria at the well. He said, If you would have asked of me water, I would have given you living water. For he that believes on me, I will have put within him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. In a few chapters following that, John chapter 7, we read a description of Jesus at one of the great feast days of the children of Israel. He says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth upon me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And here we find in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, the temple city, the residence of God and Christ and the Spirit, the triune God, in residence there upon the earth with his creation, the river. The river of life. And we find something unique about that river too, that is also a, a smaller theme in Scripture, and that is starting in verse number 2, the river flows down through the, the middle of the city, and on either side of the river is a tree of life. Where do you recall hearing of the tree of life? That's right again, in the garden in Eden. There were two trees there. Oh, there are a lot of trees. But there are two specific trees that God mentions there in dealing with Adam and Eve. There's a tree of life. And then there was another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God commanded them not to eat of that tree. They could eat of the other one. They could have eaten of the tree of life. They chose not to. They chose instead to disobey God and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was their sin. That was the sin that caused the chasm between man and the creator of man, God. That sin of Adam and Eve flows down through all of their progeny. We all inherit a sinful nature at birth. We all have it. It's common to all men. So all of us experience that separation from God, the chasm, the separation from God, with an inability to even reconcile with God. And in fact, if we're really honest, we really don't want to. We don't want to come to God. We'd rather just do our own thing, the thing that pleases us. That's what we really want to do. We don't want to fellowship with God. But we notice something interesting about this tree of life in the in the temple city, in heaven, it has leaves. Well, that's not too unusual for trees. Trees have leaves. But these leaves have a significant virtue to them. It says that these leaves are for the healing of the nations. Right now, anyone watching this video knows about the wars present in our day. And you look back through history and the horrific wars that have occurred between nations and even within nations, wars that have happened over the centuries. Well, there's coming a day when there won't be the wars between nations anymore. There won't be the dissension and the disputes over territory and land and markers and boundaries. 
because in that city there will be the tree of life and its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. No more unrest, no more confusion, no more conflicts between nations, no more separations between nations, but nations will come together and be healed by the leaves of the tree of life in the garden in Eden. We notice something else interesting in this city. It says, starting in uh, verse number 3, carrying on a little longer, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Oh boy, won't that be nice? Nothing evil? No presence of evil? No effects of evil? No death, no sorrow, no hardship, no pain, no disease, no enmities between people? No effects at all. Nothing accursed there. A place of absolute holiness and righteousness. And there in the presence of all of that, we find the throne of God and of Christ. The holy ones. The holy triune God. No more accursed thing there. And it says that we'll worship him. We'll serve him. You know, when it talks about things accursed, that's our present day life, as I mentioned a few moments ago. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, that's what curses our land and our world. We're separated from God. We've inherited a sinful nature. We have no desire to seek after God. There is that separation that has occurred between God and man. And there's that chasm in between. How is man to come to God, and how is God to bring man to God, and how is that all to transpire? Well, man can do nothing to resolve the issue. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can do nothing to make God happy and to please Him. We can't even take the first step towards God, and in fact, we don't even want to. We are at enmity with God. Oh, but here it talks about a condition where there's nothing accursed. How does that occur? That occurs because of Christ. When he came in human flesh, he assumed upon himself the sins of people like you and like me. And he paid the penalty for those sins on behalf of sinners like you and like me. And God the Father accepted his sacrifice and his payment on behalf of people like you and like me. So that those of us who come to faith in Christ and trust him as our substitute, our bridge, if you will, across the chasm from our sinful condition to God and to be reconciled with him, we can experience redemption and reconciliation back to God as he designed it through faith in Christ. Nothing accursed there. New creatures. Completely new creatures, without sin. Well, we read on. We see some more intriguing things about this place. It says we will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. How many times have you, I know I've said it many times, maybe you like me have said it many times, boy, I just wish God would come and sit down on the chair next to me. So I could see him, and I could talk to him face to face. Perhaps you've had that desire. Many people have. I've had that desire. That isn't our 
lot in our time, but there's a coming a day when we will. We will see his face. We will see him. He will have a body. Christ will have a a resurrected body, and we will have resurrected bodies like after his. We will see his face. And here's another thing. It says, his name will be on our foreheads. Can you imagine that? The name of Christ written on our foreheads? And we'll see his face? Talk about intimacy. Talk about oneness. Talk about acceptance in Christ to have his name written on our foreheads. And then we read further. It says, night will be no more than no. We saw that a little bit earlier in the one of the earlier uh, visions. There's no light there. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's no stars. For the Lord is the light. No need of a lamp. No need of the sun. Because the Lord God will be the light and they will reign with him forever. How's that for a description of heaven? How's that for some interesting comments about that place to which believers in Christ will go? Well, now this is all set in the first century. This is when God inspired John to write this letter and these descriptions, these visions, when he had them. And he sent them to believers in Christ to seven churches in what is now southwest Turkey. They're along the coast. Seven cities. So what would this letter do for them? Why why would God do that? Why would God send this letter with these descriptions of heaven? Why would he send it to those people back in the first century? Well, those people in the first century faced some very difficult times. There was persecution. There was false doctrine. There were false prophets. There was sin. There was doubt. There was unbelief, uncertainty. There was false doctrine that they followed. Many of them worshipped idols and false gods. God sent them this letter in order that he might, first of all, correct them from their sin. And then secondly, comfort them and confirm to them the prophecies of the Old Testament and of the apostles that they had read and heard and studied were true. They could believe it. They could trust it. This was their destiny, he described for them. So that it not only convicted and corrected them, but it gave them comfort and encouragement. Gave them strength for their faith to believe and to trust what they had read and heard from God through his prophets, and through his apostles. God sent it to correct them and to confirm and comfort them in the midst of great difficulty and hardship. Well, you might rightly ask, well, what correlation has that got with me today? I'm not living in the first century. (laughs) Neither am I. We're not living in the first century. What correlation does that have to you and me? Well, there's a lot of similarities between our present day and that first century, if you stop and think about it for a moment. Many people today who name the name of Christ suffer severe persecution. Great trouble and difficulty spread throughout the world because of their faith in Christ. They suffer just like those early believers did in the first century. Pressure from governments to believe a particular doctrine and to worship a particular idol and God. 
other than the true and living God is revealed in the scriptures. Great difficulty and hardship they experience. We also notice that there are many false prophets spread abroad, not only in our nation, but in the nations of the world, teaching false doctrine, enticing people away from the Bible and not to accept the Bible as the inspired word of God, inerrant, infallible, sufficient for life and godliness. And there are men today and women who spread abroad a a false message that the Bible is full of mistakes and errors. Can't believe that. Who'd want to believe the Bible? That's very present in our day, just like they had questions in that first century. So I would mention a few things to you that would encourage you from this this text in in Revelation and these visions that God gave. We have many similar circumstances to the first century. And this text can also convict us and correct us from sin and from unbelief and from doubt and uncertainty and from following false gods and false doctrine. It can also comfort us and encourage us to believe and to trust what God has revealed in his word so that we can have increased faith and peace of mind knowing our destiny, knowing what God has prepared for us. We can also find answers to some very pertinent questions in our day. We have a very questioning world in society. And there are some some significant questions, just a couple of them, for example. One of them is, why should I believe the Bible over culture? And there's a great challenge and fight today over the Bible or culture. And we can see that the Bible is true. It's living and vital and sufficient for all of life and godliness. Another problem that we see is the presence of doubt. The common statement today that we hear, can we trust God's word today? You know, this was written thousands of years ago. You know, whole, totally different culture. Can, can we trust it today? Oh, yes, we can. Oh, yes, we can. This is God's living, vital word to us. And it, it provides for us truth on which to live our lives. Another one is, does it have any relevance to today? Oh, we've seen plenty of relevance just in this one sample vision from Revelation 22. And all of Scripture is extremely relevant to everything in our day as well. We also face multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is there are multiple cultures all over the world And every culture is just as valid as another culture. And whatever their truth claims are, their truth claims are just as true as my truth claims. And everybody's got their own truth claims. And it doesn't really matter which one you follow. Yours is just as good as mine. And we need to tolerate one another's truth claims as if everyone's truth claim has equal validity. They do not. They do not. In fact, they contradict each other. So where do you find truth? God's Word. God inspired it. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient for all of life and godliness. So this text that we've examined today in a little more detail than some of the others provide for us encouragement in that line. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in Christ... 
I pray that the Holy Spirit will take this message and these comments on the book of Revelation chapter 22 and will identify for you where you have doubts, where you have sinned, where you have followed false doctrine and false prophets and will correct you and will encourage you and comfort you in the truth. The destiny of all who trust in faith upon Christ, the Savior of sinners. We read about it today in Revelation 22. I pray the Spirit of God will bring that to fruition in your life today. If you're watching this video and you are not a believer in Christ, then I have a few comments I'd like to make to you to encourage you. I would ask and pray that the Spirit of God would come to you today and give you new life. That's what you need. You need something that you can't do on your own. You need God to give you new life. And I pray that the Spirit of God will come to you today and give you that new life from above that Jesus spoke about in John chapter 3. You must be born again. A new life. A new life. A new life given from above by the Spirit of God. And I pray that He will do that for you and bring that into your life. And then I pray that as a result of Him giving you no new life, you will see Jesus. You will see Him as the Savior of sinners. And you will see yourself as a sinner needing a Savior. And you will call in faith upon Christ, turning from your sin, repenting of it, turning from it, coming to faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then you too can experience the comfort of God's Word and of His message, knowing your destiny, that one day you too will be like those described here, fellowshipping with God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit of God in a, in a city where you see His face and His name is written on your forehead. What a day that will be. I pray that the Spirit of God will come to you today and bring that to be your experience. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. If you'd like to leave a comment or an email or visit my website, those links are on the YouTube website there where you saw this video and you can communicate with me. I would welcome your comments and your your emails, your visits to my website. We'll see you next time on another adventure in Emmaus Road Chronicles.